0: SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 22 with guest Kevin Klein. Today is Kevin Klein. Kevin is the Technical Strategy Manager for SQL Server Solutions at Quest Software, leading provider of award-winning tools for database management and application monitoring on the SQL Server platform. Kevin is also the President of the International Professional Association for SQL Server, or PASS. He's been a Microsoft SQL Server MVP since 2004, is the lead author of SQL in a Nutshell, and co-author of Professional SQL Server 2005 Database Design and Optimization and Database Benchmarking. Kevin writes monthly columns for Database Trends and Applications and SQL Server Magazine and keeps blogs at sqlblog.com and sqlmag.com. Kevin's a top-rated speaker, appearing at international conferences like TechEd, PASS. Microsoft IT Forum, DevTeach, and SQL Connections. When he's not pulling out his hair over work, he loves to spend time with his four kids and in his flower and vegetable gardens. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be with you. (laughs) That's great. I haven't uh, caught up with you. I think the last time I saw you was at TechEd in Boston last year, and at the time you had no voice.
1: Uh, Yes, it's uh,
0: it's kind of a funny tradition I have, but for
1: some reason... um, with four kids, I, you know, pick up every illness that comes through the school, but it always seems mm. to happen just before I travel to a major conference, and so. Uh,
0: <laughs> Were you speaking at TechEd that year, last year? Uh, last
1: year I was not, no. Um, but, That's uh, fortunate. <laughs> yes, fortunate indeed. Uh, but I also went to um, uh, DevTeach in Montreal, in which I had a bad cold mm-hmm. there. And then at the the big PASS conference in Seattle last year, of course, being the president, I had to speak quite a bit, and also had uh, technical yes. lessons to give, and had almost completely lost my voice by uh, the week. It was uh, oh it was no, quite a <laughs> trial.
0: <laughs> oh no. Well, so uh, like I do with most guests, what I'll get you to do first up is just tell us how did you come to get involved with SQL Server at all?
1: Well, I, I um, I've been in the the IT business since 1986, and uh, I started out uh, after graduating from the uh, University of Alabama. In northern Alabama, um, we have one of the nation's largest uh, NASA spaceflight uh, facilities, mm-hmm. and my early uh, programming experience was in D-Base and in Fortran, and I uh, happened to, uh, to very luckily uh, come into a job working with Oracle there and established a a lot of skill in in Oracle and relational databases uh, at that point. And uh, when I left uh, NASA, uh, went to work for the U.S. Army Missile Command, also worked with um, Oracle databases for a while. But um, as you can tell, both of the, the jobs that I had had working with Oracle were in government uh, m- most particularly in sort of the defense and high tech industries and at the end of the cold war um and thereafter Congress really cut a lot of funding for that so i uh, uh having a family uh, wanted to move to a city with a more diverse economic base than than that related to the US government and that led me to, to- from from northern alabama that led me up to nashville tennessee where i took a job with a very large IT and consulting and auditing company known as Deloitte & Touche. And Deloitte was Mm -hmm. embarking on their first client-server application uh, project uh, with Oracle. I came to work for Deloitte at that time, uh, working on Oracle. And not long after that, they decided to uh, implement Microsoft SQL Server in each of their offices as their departmental server. Um, And this was back in the 421 days. It was actually not even an OS I'm sorry. It was an OS2 product, not even a
0: Windows. OS2, product. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so. Um, yeah, I must admit that's the stage I started to get involved with it as well. So yeah, and there were certainly some challenges at that point. Oh,
1: indeed there were. But uh, on the other hand, it was so much more affordable than Oracle, and evidently from the information we had seen, so much easier to implement than uh, and maintain hmm. in each of our different offices around the country that we we chose it as our office level departmental server. And yeah. uh, I moved from the Oracle side of the house into SQL Server support at that time. And as um, our mm-hmm. relational database investment grew, I became the team lead for SQL Server uh, DBA work and eventually uh, worked into a position called the Manager of Information Architecture for Deloitte & um working on enterprise SQL Server applications, and continued in that role until I moved to Quest in 2002, to bring all of those ideas as a enterprise DBA to life uh, in our tools.
0: Yeah. With Deloitte, do you think, given the fact they had such, um, it sounds like, a significant Oracle background, was it mostly a cost reason that they moved across?
1: That was one of the very large reasons. Uh, certainly cost was a factor. Uh, on the other hand, though, uh, at least with Deloitte. And another big issue for them was that they derive a lot of their business and a lot of their revenue um, from the market, uh, you know, from customers, uh, large Fortune 500, mm-hmm. Fortune 1000 sized companies, all the way down to yep. typically, uh, you know, medium sized companies, not necessarily very small ones, but uh, many of their clients and customers were using this, you know, brand new Microsoft stuff. And they felt that it was very important for them to be able to tell their their clients with a straight face that um, yes, we use the products that you are you are using that you are paying us to do consulting for, for example. So yeah. that was another. It was uh, you know just part good business as well uh, in terms of uh, the marketing and uh, that aspect of the whole uh, consulting side.
0: Yeah. No, that's great. And so you've enjoyed the time at Quest. I mean, you must. You, you're still there, so. uh
1: Yeah, I, ha- I have very much. And Quest is a great company to work for. And, and I'm very fortunate too in that um, Quest is, um, has allowed me to change jobs a couple times, all within a SQL Server mm-hmm. uh, uh, point of view. You know, in, in, a, in a, working in the SQL Server space. I was initially brought on to architect all of our products. Um, we had two products at the time I started, uh, one uh, called Spotlight and another one called SQL Navigator, which we no longer have. And yeah. uh, I was brought in to um, build the next generation of SQL Server tools called Quest Central, not to build them per se, but to uh, design them. And uh, so I, yeah. I was in an architecture role for about a year, and then the, for the next year and a half or two years, uh, I worked as the... Uh, the head of the R&D effort to um, build all of those tools and, you know, get them out to the public. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I moved into a more uh, technology evangelism role in which I, uh, you know, worked to promote the tools. I worked very closely with the sales group and make uh, customer visits. I spent a lot of time speaking at user groups and at conferences, writing uh, and promoting uh, and being an evangelist not just for the Quest tools but for SQL Server in general.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Well, the material we're going to cover today is your top 10 mistakes that you think people make um, with SQL Server. So perhaps if we start at number 10 and work our way to the top. Indeed. there's You know,
1: there's a variety of mistakes that I see over and over again. And I, I spend a lot of time talking with people um, both at, the, at the, the very highest end of the enterprise scale, people who have HP Superdomes with, 32 CPUs or, you know, Unisys ES700s with, uh, um, you know, 64 gigabytes of RAM and all the way down to the mom-and-pop shop with, um, you know, just commodity one and two CPU boxes and a couple gigabytes of RAM. And and it's amazing how often I see these mistakes um, perpetuated over and over again, not just in the places uh, that you might expect where, you know, a, a new shop just now utilizing SQL Server or... You know, maybe not having much experience with computers, but even in the places where you would think uh, that they would have a, some degree of excellency in IT, and and yet uh, you still find these mistakes happening. So my my number ten mistake, uh, at the lowest of of intensity, I guess you could say, of of the ten. So my number ten mistake is a design mistake, and that is not knowing the scalability requirements of the application or the design. Uh, mm-hmm. This frequently uh, manifests itself in no capacity planning for the future or poorly um, uh, poorly done capacity planning, which manifests itself not only in having too little resources for the server or the application in the long run but sometimes drastically too much resources for the application or um, yeah. the task at
0: hand yeah I must admit i've I've seen many times where people have issues and they tend to just throw hardware at it. Indeed. Uh, and often that's, you know, is nothing near what, what the problem is and certainly doesn't help. Um, but it certainly reduces their budget.
1: <laughs> exactly. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a, a session at TechEd this year specifically about this sort of thing. It's called performance baselining and monitoring. And the whole idea is that uh, let's not just throw hardware at it because, at best, if you have a bad design, at best all that happens when you throw hardware is at, at the problem is you just move the bottleneck down a little bit until sooner or later you yeah. encounter it again.
0: Actually, what that's quite intriguing too because it, I don't know if it's a mindset thing, but uh, I know some consulting I've been doing over the last um, few months, one, one of uh, the clients I've been working with, suddenly they decided, look, it would be useful to have me sort of spend like a week every month just having a look at you know performance issues and things like that in the database but what intrigued me is that they didn't do that before they also went and did major upgrades and so on because they were having performance issues and you know in the end there were so many things that you know it always intrigues me that with the dot net guys you know if they go in and do tuning you see differences like 5% and things like that. But, you know, I mean, in the database area, I mean, we see things, procs that go from, you know, 5 million logical reads to 50, you know. Exactly. Things like that. Right, so, right. Um, you, you go, it just always intrigues me that they don't do that first before going off and uh, often spending a fortune on the hardware.
1: Indeed, indeed. It's, it's so common, and uh, you find that... Uh, Everywhere you turn, I, I don't know why that happens. I wish I could uh, could pin it down to poor training or um, you know um, uh, just an inadequate understanding of the uh, of the concepts or or something like that. But it, uh, even well trained and very knowledgeable people do not you know seem to make those same mistakes again and again and again.
0: Yeah. So what's number nine? So number
1: nine on the list is, um, I would consider it to be more of a DBA mistake than a design mistake, and that is um, estimating disks, your your need in terms of disks, for volume but not for I.O. load. So very frequently, and this happens mm-hmm. a lot in shops that have SANs, um, where I'll see um, the DBA say to the SAN administrator, I need 500 gigabytes. But they don't yes. also, at the same time, say to the SAN administrator, mm-hmm. I need a max concurrent, uh, you know, maximum CPU rate of 3,500 transactions per second. Uh, or they won't, yeah. you know, and sometimes they don't know that themselves. But um, that sort of metric is just as important for the proper allocation of your disks as is um, having the right amount of space on hand.
0: Yeah. In fact... It's really good you mentioned SANS, and uh, you'd be a great one to ask these questions on. But one of the 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 big changes I've seen over the last year or so is that it's very much moving to every everything being sand based. Certainly the enterprise, but increasingly when you start to ask questions about how things are laid out or uh, disk performance or or certainly I/O throughput and all those things, you, you tend to get a a um, a sort of a discussion that comes back that says, oh, look, don't worry about that, you know. It, and, and yeah, you know, like th- there's this sort of uh, perception that, you know, if they just throw enough cache in there and they throw enough, you know, gear under the covers that it just won't be an issue, but invariably it is. Exactly.
1: And so many people seem to interpret the, the SAN as a, panacea, excuse me, as a panacea, you know, as a cure-all for anything related to disk or I.O., when in fact it, it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, by using a sand, you actually introduce new issues into the mix. For example, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, cash. You may have an, an enormous cash, but it's possible because of the way that people uh, distribute many applications across the sand. But all the cash is being consumed by, let's say, exchange if it's on the same sand. Or you may have your cash yeah. configured uh, entirely too much for reads and not enough for writes or vice versa. So um, there's, or you may be, you know, another common mistake I see with SANS is that the SAND administrator, thinking only about uh, the needs of the DBA in terms of volume, chooses to use RAID 5, um, when in fact the, you yeah, know, the oh, much, yes. much more performance sort of uh, I.O. for you on RAID would be a RAID 1, or maybe even your application warrants mm-hmm. having RAID 10, but those are not even, uh, yeah. you know, a consideration because... Uh, the IO, I'm sorry, and the disk are all administrated by the SAN administrator who has no idea what the performance profile is that the application needs.
0: And also they, they tend to allocate uh, volumes off the SAN with absolutely no comprehension as to what, how that maps to physical drives under the covers. Um, I And, and I find invariably that the SQL folk often think they're doing the right thing by getting, you know, logs on different volumes and so on. But under the covers often that isn't what's ending up happening anyway.
1: Indeed, indeed. Of course, that's a, it's a fundamental and essential rule, SQL Server, that you keep your transaction logs on physically separate disks from your database files and The sand can completely obfuscate that and make it impossible for you to determine whether that's happening or not. And as you mentioned, consequently, that happens quite frequently.
0: Actually, the other one that I I run into problems with sands is uh, often in hosted environments, which I'm finding at the higher end are becoming more and more common. Uh, Of course, are then shared sands, and where it becomes even harder to work out what's going on, uh, and there are just periods where things just go slow and you can't work out why, because often you don't even have the tools to look at it. That's right.
1: That's right, indeed. And that, that leads actually directly to what I believe to be mistake number eight. Uh, number eight on my mm-hmm. list is not explicitly knowing the server load and the performance profile of your SQL Server. And so this leads to a variety of issues the, the biggest one um, which i find to be very very important is that you have no idea uh because you don't know what the load of your server is you don't know what normal is nor is it easily possible for you to make a determination if a certain set of behavior is abnormal and because of that um, for example um, in the case in, in in my case back in my days at deloitte um you're you're never able to tell, until you know explicitly what your server load is, you're never able to tell uh, how good the user experience is except by the volume of, of calls you get. <laughs> so if your phone is ringing a lot, oh, you know yes. things are bad, and if your phone isn't ringing much, you suspect things are good. Uh, but if you don't actually explicitly know through performance monitoring how you know what your server's average load looks like and how its current performance is compared to that average, you'd never have quantitative information that tells you whether things are good or not. So uh, that that mm-hmm. leads to situations like um, a, a terrible problem has existed on the server since Friday afternoon, but since everyone had left the office on Friday afternoon, you don't know until Monday morning when everyone logs back in. Now, if you had been monitoring the situation, you would have been able to fix it over the weekend, and no user would have been... The wiser It would have been repaired by the time they came back to work. But since you didn't know what the load yeah. on the server was like, what was causing problems, then you find out that... Uh, you then come to find out when, you, when everyone comes in on Monday morning.
0: Yeah. No, indeed. Yeah. That's a sub- substantial issue. And, in fact, the, the thing that I always... Uh, remember with any sort of performance tuning is that is it always a case of having a baseline uh, (laughs) because I I find invariably that whenever somebody starts monitoring something everything looks strange
1: indeed indeed and uh, one of the most common questions I get is uh, let's say for example uh, someone is monitoring disk queue length because they are trying to determine why it seems like the disks are slow and you know, I get a question that says, you know, my my disk queue length spikes up enormously every so often, and I, it's I can't tell exactly what what is happening or why that is happening. And you know, an experienced user, or even a, you know, someone well versed in the um, the internals of SQL Server, will remember that checkpointing happens every so often, and that's when all of the I/O yeah. is flushed to disk, but. You know folks, for the first time when they're looking at it, they don't know what normal is, and so they become very concerned um, without realizing that hey, this was simply a, a normal process of the of the server,
0: yeah, yeah, I used to see that with things like network traffic monitoring, where people would go and run ethernet sniffers and but the first time they did that was when there was a problem and, I mean, every single thing they looked at would lead them to go off and investigate it because it didn't look right to them, but they had absolutely no idea that that's how it normally looks. That's
1: a great, that's a great anecdote. I, I hadn't really thought of that before, but you're right. I've even seen the exact same sort of thing uh, before in the past. And so the, the worst time in the world to actually start looking at um, server load and server activity is when there's a problem. Uh, because you you can't, you can't tell yeah. what normal is, and you can't tell what is abnormal, based on because you have no knowledge of what normal is.
0: Yeah. Um, so what's the next one all right, on the list? Number,
1: number seven on the list is a, a very common developer mistake uh, I encounter quite often, and that is not really un, uh, having no understanding of what how the query engine of SQL Server works, and consequently uh, you you see some horrifically bad. Uh, queries that come out of, uh, you know, this kind of ignorance of, of how the query engine works. For example, um, not really understanding the importance of a where clause. And so uh, the where clause, of course, is the main means by which you uh, reveal to the query engine your search arguments. And your search arguments is the main, uh, you know, is the main way that SQL Server then turns around and figures out which sorts of indexes it can use, and what sort of fetching algorithms it can use, how can it process on a join and so forth. And so in situations, I've frequently seen developers, for example, uh, issue a query against, uh, the SQL server and bring back all the data and then they have the front end application sort out the data, uh, at the, at the front end for the user. And so not only does this you know, yes. generate an enormous amount of network traffic, it also generates a lot of table scans and full index reads and and things like that lots of logical and physical IO whereas if they had uh, thought about it just yeah. for a moment longer and added that where clause to the uh, to the query that they issued it would have actually gotten much better performance and then saved the the client application the entire process of sorting out that data
0: yeah I've often often also seen um, Often in uh, a lot of the development languages, there are often sort of options that you can apply when you're executing commands and so on, and people don't understand the the difference those different options make. And so, for example, a very common one I used to see with things like ADO previously, um, you had, say, a record set object, and what it had is it had an option that said, AD open forward only or 80 open static was the default or you had key set options and so on. But when people ran it in development, they, they would see no difference at all because they were working with small amounts of data and they were the only one working against a database. But, but when you showed them a profiler trace and they, and you, you can see that the difference was, you know, a handful of IOs as opposed to, you know, 80,000 remote procedure calls, uh, suddenly they realize that, yeah, just changing that word makes a substantial difference. And But I think part of the problem is that they're often developing in environments where you can't perceive that there's a problem.
1: Excellent point. That is an excellent point. And I have seen that a multitude of times, and it's something that I often encourage users to, or developers, to think about. And that is, uh, and also not just developers, but, you know, business owners and, and analysts to think about as they, lay down the requirements for an application. So many times we see business requirements are the only kind of requirements, let's say, for a, a stored procedure, for example. And it says, you know, you for such and such sorts of inputs, you need to return um, X, Y, Z sorts of output, um, and that's all it says. And now occasionally, every now and then, you will also see an extra bit of requirement that says you will need to return your output within a certain period of time, let's say thirty seconds, but it doesn't actually say yep. it doesn't say what it needs to say, which is you will return uh, the uh, result set within thirty seconds under a user load of three hundred concurrent users.
0: Uh, you, yeah. you know,
1: that, uh, it, it's, it's at that point, those scalability points that you really see whether the application was designed well or not.
0: Yeah, well, certainly, uh, I found it's very enlightening for people to sit there and simply watch a profile or trace just to to see what's actually being sent to the database because they are often very removed from from what's actually hitting the database, and it's one of the things that sort of fascinates me about the directions with things like Link uh, up co- in the upcoming uh, current Orca's development cycle and so on. Uh, is just that people will be even further removed from what's going on and I, I suppose there are two possibilities there one is it will write much better code than they would have anyway so even if it doesn't write great code maybe we're better off or <laughs> alternately you know it it could write kind of horrible code and uh and you sort of wonder where that then leaves us i, I watched a few demos, for example, that Scott Guthrie's done in recent times where he said, look, if you're concerned about the SQL generated, you can always hit a breakpoint here and stop and have a look at it. But what they usually don't follow that discussion up with is, if you don't like it, what are you going to do next? (laughs) Um, and, And I look at a lot of this automatically generated SQL, and it's far from what you'd normally want. Um, For example, every time they involve, uh, they have, say, several tables involved in some form of join, instead of using the table, they will always do a sub-select from the Mm. table simply so that they can then alias it, so that they can then reuse it as they code-generate the SQL query. And I'm just looking at all this stuff and thinking, you know, you look at the query and go, oh, my God, you know, there's no way you'd normally write a query that looks Mm -hmm. like that. And what I'm wondering is if down the track, are they going, are the SQL team going to have to sort of change the way the query optimizer works in SQL Server to make it deal with Link better? Right. Yeah, now Link is. And so yeah, I, I do, I do wonder if the development tools are going to push that sort of change. That's
1: a great question. That is a great question.
0: But I don't me, know the answer. Me either. I would <laughs> so, we'll, we'll see what happens uh-huh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so moving on.
0: But anyway, so what yeah, was the next one on, on the list? Number yeah. six
1: on my list is a design issue, um, and it's closely related to n- the number seven, which is not understanding the query engine, uh, and that is um, not under our indexing issues. And usually indexing issues arise because they don't understand how indexes um, impact query performance and overall performance of the application. So there's very common ones that are kind of egregious query errors. Uh, And and there's a sort of pecking order within this broad um, landscape of index issues. For example, having no clustered index of any kind or no primary key of any kind. Those are just, you know, egregiously Mm -hmm. bad errors in terms of, uh, of indexes. But then there are others that are more subtle, but in some cases equally Uh, in the longer run, equally important. For example, um, not applying fill factors to a table um, that has lots of inserts or updates, uh, changes to it, and and thereby causing lots of page splits on that table. is a sort of uh, tuning uh, technique that is often overlooked but is very, very valuable in in those uh, situations where it could come into play. A similar example is not balancing... Uh, the indexes of a, of a given table, not balancing uh, or that table itself for I.O. So, um, you know, not mm-hmm. um, not taking... Too
0: in- I suppose the, the question I was going to say with the fill factor, I suppose we should probably drill into a little bit further because it, it, it doesn't seem to be a well-understood thing. Um, mm-hmm. And this is, of course, where we're allowing a percentage of space at the leaf level of an index. And with pad index allows us to push it mm-hmm. up to the higher levels as well. But with fill factor, I suppose the question is really where the inserts are occurring. So it's kind of useful if the inserts are occurring across the range of leaf pages, more so than if they're all occurring at the Exactly, exactly so mm-hmm. Of the table.
1: Oh, that's yeah. exactly right. And so, as I mentioned, it's certain uh, and it would depend on how your clustered index is arranged and so forth and where your your records yeah. are being inserted or if you have for example lots of updates that are happening across the the spectrum of your uh the, the, you know the entirety of your table rather than at the very last page or two yeah. in a situation like that where your inserts are going to that very last page or two it's 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 good not to have uh, too much of a fill factor but uh in other situations yeah. it can be very detrimental
0: yeah in fact, I've seen the converse of that as well, where people tend to think, well, I'll just make the fill factor low. Um, but they haven't really thought about the converse effect that, you know, if the pages are only half full, you've got to read twice as many pages exactly. to do and anything. Again, yeah, that's,
1: you know, that's the that's sort the of stuff. situation in which you have to, have to have to have a good understanding of the I.O. requirements of the application as it applies to that specific table, because, as you mentioned, uh, more fill factor and, and also if you use pad index and take it up to the in- index level of the uh, uh, of that specific table then it generates more i o and sometimes that uh, additional IO will not gain you any performance benefits so uh, it's it's a mixed bag and you yeah. have to have a good understanding of both your application and how it hits these uh, you know how how it uh, moves its data against these tables and indexes and conversely how the um, um, uh, you know how the query engine itself and the transactions that apply against this app I mean, or within this application apply against the, the database. So it's just, I guess, uh, you know, a lot of these issues that I, I describe here in this top ten list all go back to whether you are in a position where you can understand what is happening or not. And if you choose to take the path of not understanding what is happening there behind the scenes, you're really taking a lot of risks.
0: Yeah. Listen, that's that's great, Kevin. Well, that's a good point that we could uh, take a break and we'll come back uh, shortly and discuss the top five. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Okay, so welcome back from the break. Uh, what I'll get you to do then first, Kevin, uh, before we continue with the second part, is just anything you're willing to share about where you live, what you do, uh, I suppose um, hobbies or sports or anything mm-hmm. like that?
1: Well, well, thank you very much, Greg. Well, uh, I guess the thing that I'm most proud of in my life really is that uh, I'm a father of four wonderful kids uh, from ages uh, 16 all the way down to six. Mm. So... Um, if you ever want to have a uh, intelligent and detailed discussion about SpongeBob SquarePants,
0: I'm I'm the man. Um,
1: I know um, I know far too much about children's entertainment. <laughs> Probably the majority of the entertainment that I've seen for the last few years but uh but that's quite alright. I, I love every moment that I'm able to spend with my kids and I enjoy it very much. I, my oldest son is uh my oldest is my son, he's 16 and then I have um, three daughters aged uh 14 uh Eight and um, and six, so quite a mix in ages there. And
0: does this of, involve uh, you traveling around a lot to their sports or anything at present? Or?
1: Uh, well, you know, at this point, I'm kind of lucky in that they uh, they're they're uh, uh, rather homebodies, and uh, so they don't have to ferry them to and fro to uh, all sorts of uh, activities. But the the younger girls are getting uh, very active in. Both uh, karate and dance, and then my two older kids um, are very involved in uh, music and theater, and so uh, there's a little bit of to and fro there, but uh, it's all quite manageable, and and uh, it's quite a pleasure to to watch them uh, as they mature and and learn new things and do their yeah uh, do the different things there.
0: No, that's great. And so, which city were you living in? I
1: live in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. Uh, which is uh, kind of nicknamed, uh, it's called uh, Music City USA, and uh, it, it, it's really quite funny and, and fun in some ways because uh, when I was growing up, it wasn't a common thing for young men to join the, the, the choir at school. Um, yeah. Not a lot of guys did it, but here at my son's high school, my daughter's, high, uh, my daughter's middle school, they both um, have enormous choirs with very large groups of uh, young men in there, and, um, you know, it's, well, of course, Dad, it's it's Music City. Everybody sings here. <laughs> and and conversely, uh, my son is a very good guitarist. And, and I also, um, growing up, uh, played quite a bit of guitar and classical guitar, in particular Spanish guitar. And, but yeah. uh, you know, learned plenty of rock and things like that. And so in my hometown, if you went to a party and somebody said, yeah, I play guitar a little, that meant they could play a few songs. Yeah. Uh, and maybe not terribly well. Here in Nashville, you go to a party and someone says, Yeah, I play guitar a little. And they pick up the guitar and they proceed to, uh, you know, uh, display <laughs>
0: they're, Virtuoso <they're>, challenges. <laughs> they're absolute wizards. Yeah, no, indeed. <laughs> that's, exactly. that's excellent. And, and, you know, they only work in IT because that's the day job. And they're trying yeah.
1: to uh, get into, uh, into the music scene here. And that's their real passion. So, that kind yeah, of I,
0: I think that's the thing. Yeah, that the music can easily be the passion. Unfortunately, uh, uh, It can also leave you broke, <laughs> I think. The, That's the, right. It doesn't pay the yeah. bills quite as well. No. Uh, but, the, it, uh, but it's
1: to our benefit as a just a plain old resident of the city because you can go to most any honky-tonk or tavern or bar, and there's quite a very good group performing there playing for tips. You know, there's no cover charge yeah. or anything like that. Uh, because they're hoping to be seen by the, that record producer, or that 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 great talent to help get them in the door at the at the music, you know, in the mu- music business. So um, actually, you do Carl,
0: Carl Franklin often discusses. He sort of wonders what the connection is between uh, developers and IT area and music, but it's it's really quite strong. There, there seems to be a a serious correlation between the two and. Uh, I just sort of often wondered why that is, you know, any thoughts as to why music seems to, playing music seems to fit well with people in IT? Is it kind of the patterns or the problem solving or?
1: You know, that's that's a great question. And I'm not exactly sure, except that I believe that uh, I think that people who are, who excel in IT and who are good at this are used to kind of, it, it's hard hard to explain, but are are used to displaying their creativity their creativity through an instrument so mm. uh, so conversely you I don't think you'll find as nearly as many proportionately nearly as many people who are good developers for example who might also be very active in the local community theater
0: yeah you no
1: know, they're they're not used to not um it's not a comfort zone for them to to be out there displaying something that's just them, you know, singing or music or oratory or something like that. Conversely, though, they're very comfortable and very used to um, picking up an instrument like the computer and having that be a representation of their creativity and their intellect and, and their, their capacity to, to do neat and creative things. And so when you turn around and pick up a guitar or put your, lay your hands on a keyboard or something like that, you, although... The, the thought process is different I think the, the kind of inner uh, energy you derive from that creative expression is similar and so I, I can I can certainly see why uh, you know a lot of IT guys really enjoy that guitar or really
0: enjoy that yeah it's uh, you know, that intriguing it, so it is, with, I, with all the things with the kids uh, been any time for your own sort of sports or hobbies or anything or
1: you know, um, it's it's the tyranny of the paycheck these days for me. Um, <laughs> so with four kids, that's a lot of mouth to, mouths to feed and mm. um, college funds to try and um, uh, satisfy and so forth. Um, yeah. And uh, so my main hobbies, really, I've had to subordinate to the needs of, you know, supporting the family and so forth. I do have several hobbies and, and things like that, but... They're mm. they're they're so small in comparison to how I spend my time. I do yeah. enjoy reading, and uh, I do enjoy classical guitar myself. Um, but uh, I haven't really been able to explore those too terribly much um, uh, Actually, lately.
0: In reading too, uh, I, uh, I I find the most knowledgeable people I find around the industry again also have a passion for reading. Uh, we had Yuval Lowy out recently, and. Uh, Again, I was talking to him about this and, you know, he, you know, is someone who just consumes books, you know, um, endlessly. And what intrigues me is it's often books, uh, certainly non-technical, you know, about all sorts of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, reading is kind of an interesting passion. I, I, I tended to have periods for a long time where I haven't, um, read much apart from technical books. Uh, but in recent times, I've finally managed to get to read a few other things, and it's, it really is kind of refreshing to get to do that. Do, do you get to read anything but technical books?
1: Oh, indeed, actually, and when I say reading, I, I mean outside of technology. Um, Good, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, so my, my, favorite, my favorite books these days are uh, nonfiction books. Mm-hmm. So um, the reason for that is because uh, now I have read several fiction books that I just thoroughly enjoyed. But the problem for me when I when I read a, a fiction book that I really enjoy, a novel or something like that, uh, it, they really tend to grip me, and uh, and so consequently I don't want to put put the book down and, and um, you know get back to finishing you know whatever job I, it is I have at hand. So um, I tend to enjoy uh, uh, more often nonfiction books because I can read them for a while. And then go back to work, and then come back and read them again. Let's say for an hour or two hours uh, a night. Whereas uh, when I'm reading a, a you know a novel that I really enjoy, then I probably will suffer a little drop in productivity because I'll be sneaking off
0: every chance I can to. <laughs> to yes. Read it. Actually, the the company I work for, the, there are quite a few intriguingly uh, in, interested in Harry Potter, and so I must admit, when the next uh, v- uh, book in the Harry Potter series appears. There'll certainly be even some adults. There'll be quite a few that'll just disappear for a, a day or so until, and resurface knowing what happened to Harry. <laughs> so, so.
1: indeed. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> I have to admit I'm caught in that trap too. I can't wait to find out, but.
0: Uh, uh, no, and, uh, actually, the, the book I've enjoyed the most, I've been telling people about lately was uh, mentioned to me by uh, one of my colleagues, Chris Hewitt, and it's uh, Bill Bryson. I don't know if you've come across as an author, but, uh, he has a, a wonderful book I'm reading called A Brief History of Nearly Everything. And, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a, a wander from the beginning of time quickly through to, uh, to the present time. And, but it, it just is, it's so funny in places and it's, uh, it's got an amazing combination of depths of scientific knowledge and, uh, but also just humorous stuff. But in, in fact, the uh, one quick story I'll share with you, I, Uh, the the story I remember best from it was about Thomas Midgley and most people have never heard of Thomas Midgley but uh, in fact I I know people now who describe him as the single most dangerous organism that's ever infested the planet (laughs) (laughs) and uh, this is because poor old Thomas had three major inventions Uh, the the first one was he's the guy who invented putting lead in petrol and uh, (laughs) and so like (laughs) classically bad stuff but his second invention were cfc's <laughs> oh my word you know how one person could could have Indeed. both of those is beyond comprehension uh and but his third invention uh was he got polio and he invented a machine to turn him over in bed and it strangled him <laughs> oh my
1: so, so how very very ironic isn't
0: thats it? yeah but but, yeah, they say he's probably done more to uh, damage the planet than any other organism that's ever existed. <laughs>
1: Indeed, and, and by extension, you know, who knows how many uh, cases of skin cancer led to fatality because of CFCs <laughs> yes. or, you know, asthma caused by smog, caused by leaded gasoline. How,
0: uh, how anyway, so funny. I think Thomas Midgley would probably be the, uh, the poster boy for... Uh, like on a dartboard for the environmental movement <laughs> you know, or something. You know, and, and but, uh, that's
1: an interesting corollary to um, uh, the book that I've just most recently finished reading. And, and um, the corollary, the book is called um, Collapse, and it's written by a man named Jared Diamond. And uh, the corollary is um, that when we touch the different natural systems, like air quality or water quality or something yeah. like that. We really don't understand how many things it touches. And so mm-hmm. you may think you're just knocking over a single uh, a single domino, but in fact it's it's it touches 10 dominoes that touch 10 other dominoes that touch 10 others. And so uh this book um, collapse is uh it's about he uh, the author has selected several societies throughout time that through the different conscientious decisions that the societies made, actually provoked an environmental collapse that then provoked uh, the collapse of the entire society. So uh, a couple examples of that would be um, the islanders on Easter Island.
0: Easter Island, yes, classic you know, example.
1: Yeah. We've all seen those famous stone statues. But what many of us don't realize is that Easter Island was what once a, a lushly forested,
0: <laughs> yes. and
1: a beautiful island full of wildlife and full of um, people, too. Yeah. And um, uh, so he goes through all kinds of interesting archaeological uh, information as well as um, firsthand accounts from the um, Europeans that actually visited the island. When Europeans got there, it was about two or three generations after the society there had collapsed yeah. uh... from a peak of about forty or fifty thousand people down to when the time the explorers arrived there was about two to three thousand people mm. and so how did this society fall from so great a height um, and not only that what kind of lessons can we as a, a modern society learn from that um, and mm-hmm. so he looks at several others throughout time uh... the north uh, you know i i didn't even realize this until he described it in the, in the book but uh, Greenland was once populated by Norsemen. Uh, and quite, there were yeah. several large Norse colonies there. Didn't even know it. They lasted for several hundred years, but, but then eventually died out and disappeared, and no one knows exactly mm-hmm. why. So it goes through um, uh, what's the ar- archaeological evidence of that, uh, of the Mayans. Why did they collapse? Uh, and so forth. The Anasazi Indians of uh, central and southwestern United States. Um, and describes each of those and how they touched these, uh, this multiplicity of systems kind of like what you're saying by not even realizing that by introducing lead to gasoline or CFCs into the, you know, into the manufacturing process, you disturb all kinds of systems. And then in a situation like ours, well, we realize that and we reverse course. But some of these civilizations that he points out did not reverse course despite seeing a sign. Mm. Why is that? And so it's a, it's a very interesting <laughs> question that he, that he poses and interesting answers that he brings up too.
0: Ah, that's good. I'll add that to my list of uh, of ones I need to get. <laughs> that's great. Well, listen, back on SQL Server topics, the I suppose then we're in the top five. So, what's what's your number five?
1: Um, usually, I think these are all pretty big um, and pretty uh, pretty egregious errors when you see them. It's the kind of thing that, when a SQL Server professional, uh, someone who has a lot of experience in the business, actually sees these things being done. He kind of slaps his forehead or her forehead in exasperation and says, oh, here's this problem again. Um, And so number five on my list is um, using cursors heavily in Transact SQL Code um, and not understanding the difference between set theory and uh, row-based processing. Yep. So it's very, very common to see cursors in... SQL Server code, but you know, a cursor is the sort of thing that can be used um, profitably and effectively, but it has a a very small sort of um, uh, need. You know, it's not going to process a lot of records or anything like that. But Mm. uh, there's been plenty of times in which I've seen um, a group of programmers develop an application in which every time they access data from the SQL Server engine, they use a cursor to do it. And in a situation like this, you're often um, actually introducing a great deal of overhead and a great deal of additional work for the engine, memory consumption and locking issues and so forth. And it comes from uh, a lack of understanding about how uh, SQL Server processes select statements and the impact of what cursors do to the SQL Server engine.
0: Yeah. In fact, I I think what's kind of intriguing there, too, is the uh it, it may be a development background or something but i think it's where people tend to learn when they're doing development to learn to think procedurally and and certainly they don't tend to ever learn much uh in trying to think in terms of set based operations um i often in that case think one of the the, the least um understood areas is even simple things like using case statements appropriately Uh, to allow you to express how to process an entire set of things with some procedural-type decisions or logical decisions, but without having to write procedural code.
1: Right. That's an excellent example. That's an excellent example. Uh, You know, and as a similar kind of follow-on thought to that, Um, yes, it's very true that developers do tend to to perpetuate the things that they learn uh, in their... You know their development uh, experience. So if they learn C-sharp, for example, they're going to try to do things kind of like they have done with C-sharp. They'll try to do that in Transact SQL. And one of the really interesting things for me, uh, being a former Oracle professional, is that um, you'll see it very, very commonly, someone who is an Oracle person retooling for SQL Server will make this mistake very, very frequently. And that is because, and it's not well known in the SQL Server world, But in the Oracle world, any select statement that you write um, is materialized behind the scenes in the Oracle uh, query engine as an implicit cursor. And so cursors on Oracle have absolutely no difference in performance uh, compared to a uh, a SQL select statement. So uh, when I was actually learning uh, SQL Server, ha- having been an Oracle person for about five years, it took me a while to understand that. Oh, wait a minute, cursors, cursors are very different. You know, you have to allocate them, and then when you're done, you have to deallocate them, give that memory back, and release the locks that were opened by the cursor, and so forth. So uh, it's another thing that not only does the development background of the person contribute to uh, this issue, but also uh, if they have a different platform experience, or if they have an Oracle experience before coming to SQL Server, it certainly kind of adds to this and compound the problem.
0: Actually, that's really interesting because I, I have to, I have to say, yeah, uh, most most situations where I come across substantial cursor use, and I might add temporary table use, um, tend to be from people with an Oracle background. And uh, uh, I mean, I've spent. Some time working with Oracle over the years, and did go off and do some certification things, but you know I've never really considered myself an Oracle person, and and, and it does it has always sort of intrigued me as to why that is, and uh, I think it's I come across many shops where they say, you know they've considered implicit c- curses in Oracle kind of uh, almost evil or something, and so I've seen shops where they've said look they always have explicit curses. And so when they make a sort of a migration across, yeah, that's absolutely the first thing they do. Oh, uh huh, uh-huh. very interesting. So yeah, I, I don't, I hadn't quite known, but in fact, yeah, I, I suppose whenever I look for um, poorly performing code, uh, often the telltale signs when you first open the code for stored procedures are tons of cursor code and tons of temporary tables.
1: Exactly. And those are the sorts of things that usually indicate to me that this person doesn't really understand SQL Server very well. Mm. Uh, And I'll I'll give you an example. It was kind of funny. At one point, we were uh, developing a large application, um, and the uh, developers had uh, used quite a large number of uh, cursors. As a matter of fact, almost every one of their stored procedures uh, would use a cursor. And so I explained to them that, you know, cursors are not effective um, for large data sets typically unless, you know, there's some special exceptions and so forth and, you know, can really slow things down. And the reason for their poor performance was the heavy, heavy use they made of cursors and, and temp tables and for them to take those out. And so they got very, very busy and worked very hard for a couple of days and rewrote their stored procedures and brought them back for another code review. and. When I look in the first store procedure that I was quite familiar with that had used cursors, the first thing they had done is said uh, set row count equals one, while this condition, loop through the record one at a time, <laughs> uh, and yeah. so use a while loop to go through and look at each record one after the other and make the change and so forth. And I, you know, had to kind of throw up my hands in exasperation, saying, Wait a minute, guys, let's let's come back here and focus on. Uh, this idea of set theory. You want to work with sets at a time rather than individual rows. So just kind of a funny anecdote that they'd spend all this time and energy taking cursors out and replacing those cursors with uh, while loops to go through one record at a time. Yeah. Not really thinking about.
0: Seen exactly the same thing many many times. In fact, I've also seen... uh, situations where people have felt that while loops will perform better than a cursor. And in many cases I've, I've seen situations where that just isn't the case in, in the way they do it because they end up doing something like while I can't select a while you know, if not, while not exists type while loops and they end up sort of end up like querying again, every time they go around the loop, you know, and in fact, a um, <laughs> you know, a standard cursor would have actually been far better, but right, right. Um, but I also the other situation I find it in is where people don't um, have a good grasp of the the language at all. Uh, in fact, I was at a uh, a site two weeks ago where the lady there, when I looked at her use of temp tables and uh, and so on, it was simply that she didn't understand union statements. Yeah. and so uh, things like she said, but I have to select from more than one place. So what she would do is create a temporary table, do insert selects from the different spots and then do a select of the rows at the end. But there was no concept for her that she could have just used a union, you know, with with her multiple selects. And uh, she really didn't have to create sort of temporary structures.
1: Wow. Yep. That that certainly will do it.
0: So what's number four?
1: Yeah, let's look at number four here. So number four is... um uh, is another uh, developer sort of issue that I find. And that is, you know, so we've talked about several things that kind of lead up to, uh, I think, number four. We've talked about, you know, not understanding query engine, not understanding index as well. But another, I think it's a uh, it's a worse mistake for de- developers in a lot of cases because um, it's so much a part of what they should be trying to do. And that is that they don't understand how to tune a query once one has been written. Uh, either their own or someone else's. And I, and I don't mean in the sense of uh, knowing how to write better SQL, um, since I feel like that kind of falls more into the first, uh, the first two that appeared earlier in the top ten list. What I mean is they don't know how to use any of the tools out there, the, even the free native tools that come with SQL Server, yeah. to detect if a, a query is performing badly and then how to isolate that and work with it. So they don't know how to use Profiler. You know, they don't know how to use yeah. um, the DMVs or the system views in uh, mm-hmm. SQL Server 2000. They don't know how to use DVCC mem usage or, you know, any of those sorts of mm-hmm. commands that help reveal how well a query is operating and um, and and go from there. And I think that that, you know, as a developer, it's it's essential for you to know how to use. before, Even if you don't know the the, you know, the kind of theoretical concepts, I can... I can forgive uh, a developer of that for some reason. I don't know why, but I, f- I feel like that's a more forgivable mistake than it is not to understand how to use these simple and effective tools that are right there at your disposal. Because as a, 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 at the end of the day, a developer is a tool-using person. So tools should be the kind of thing that they should dive into and learn quickly.
0: Yeah. Even with SQL 7 2000, mm-hmm. I used to... Explain to people there's a reason it was called Query Analyzer and not uh, just Query Executor. Right,
1: exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Very good (laughs) point.
0: You could do other things with it. (laughs) That's The In fact, I've got a session uh, on DMVs uh, for TechEd coming up. I'm just wondering, what are your favourites?
1: You know, I actually looked forward to your... and I saw your session... uh, Look forward to it with great interest because I'm not quite as well um, versed in, in DMVs as I want to be. And so I, you know, I was excited about your session because I hope to get a a, a better kind of panorama of,
0: you know, there are so many DMVs now, and so it's not that's the thing, yeah, there are so many, and, and so at the moment I must admit, every, every opportunity I get, I'm still asking people, what's your, what are your favorites yes, yeah, so, <laughs> to find out which ones they do use. You know,
1: I can't my favorites
0: I, um... just based on the
1: limited knowledge I have. It's but it's yeah, it's not a direct, you know, the DMVs are not a direct one for one equation uh, compared to the old system views in SQL Server 2000, Mm -hmm. but uh, some of the DMVs that I really like are uh, like the uh, uh, OS memory clerks, and so several of those different clerk uh, DMVs I think are really, really useful because they tell you things like how much memory this particular stored procedure is consuming in the procedure cache or that particular table is consuming in the buffer cache. And then by writing some really clever uh, queries against those DMVs, you can see these are the top 10 consuming store procedures, or these are the, you know, the most commonly called um, tables and different, uh, different things associated with, with memory. I feel like that's an area uh, where you can make a lot of performance gains by understanding what's happening in SQL Server memory. And so yeah. I think the instrument...
0: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a wonderful view they've given us into what's going on inside SQL Server.
1: Absolutely. The uh, and I was just about to to kind of go in that direction that the instrumentation is so much richer now with SQL Server 2005, and anything we've had in the past. I think it's um, uh, in, a, in a way it's it's kind of about time because as an old Oracle hound, um, I can tell you that Oracle has had uh, these sorts of uh, views for many many years, and they call them uh, mm-hmm. dollar views and and X dollar views, don't they? and so. Uh, they've used this approach for quite a long time, and they've they've had much better instrumentation there. So from a competitive standpoint, it's very good to see the SQL Server is really you know coming on to parity with um, with Oracle in regards to that. But also, you know, just from a practitioner standpoint, it's just great to have the ability to to utilize these and, and get that information out of the system. It's, it's just so helpful.
0: Mm. That's great. Well, so what are we up to? Is it number
1: three? We're up to number three now. This is. I think, yeah. I think this is the number one design mistake that I see, um, uh, that I see out there in the uh, in, in the wider uh, marketplace, I guess you could say. And that is, a, uh, when it comes to design, it still amazes me how many people do not know what normalization is. And then Mm -hmm. uh, an extension of that is they don't know, if they have learned normalization, they don't know when it's appropriate not to normalize. Yes. Uh, So it kind of boils down to improperly normalized tables, both not normalizing enough or perhaps normalizing too much or in an inappropriate application, for example, constructing normalized tables for a data warehouse. You really don't want to go to third normal form in a situation like that. But, um, yeah, you know, it amazes me that... um, people don't know how to, uh, to go through a rigorous process of, of a table design and uh, deciding what uh, data is uh, held in a specific table and what is put into other tables and then linked through a relationship um, on primary keys and foreign keys. Mm. And this is the sort of thing that a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, it's all academic. And, you know, it doesn't... It doesn't
0: yeah, make no, no, difference. it's not. <laughs>
1: but it really does make a big difference. I think it kind of...
0: Yeah, in fact, uh, if I often look at problems with query performance, and, and yet yeah, they are directly related to the fact that the tables are poorly designed in the first place, and so the queries end up being an order of magnitude more complicated than they need to be. Exactly,
1: exactly. And, you know, one of the things I see very frequently that... Uh, I think it comes from the fact that our industry is one in which... Um, um, there's a, there's a, at least here in the USA, there's quite a need for people with these skills. And so they'll take, uh, you know, in many cases they'll take someone who has related experience and, you know, it's a promotion for them. So they get a new job. Let's say they were very good with Access or they were good with Excel. Mm-hmm. And so now they're going to get to work on SQL Server with big data sets and so forth. And so they design SQL Server tables exactly like they would have once they were a small Access desktop application. Or an Excel spreadsheet, yep. and I don't know how many times I've run into developers who actually say things like, "Well, I need to, you know, put my records into this file here," and what they mean is uh, they, they still haven't even learned the terminology for SQL Server, since "file" is a yeah. you know is an Access sort of terminology, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's one of those moments where I just have to gasp in exasperation and say, "All right, let's start at the beginning," <laughs> and yeah. you know try to try to instruct them on what it means to design a table properly.
0: Well, I mean, you mentioned primary keys before. In fact, the, the same lady uh, who didn't follow the union thing, you know, I, I, again, I had an endless discussion for for a while there with, you know, like why it even matters to have a primary key on a table and, you know, things like that. It, it's, uh, um, yeah, again, yeah, people get put into roles doing this stuff uh, you know, and and when you can explain things to them, they go, oh, there's that aha moment. But, right. <laughs> but but it's very sad that it's at the end of their project rather than at the beginning sometimes. Indeed, indeed.
1: So what's number two? Yeah, my number two, um, the, the last two are DBA issues, DBA mistakes, and the number two one is having no or very poor error notification in place on your SQL server. Mm -hmm. There's a number of tools that make it very easy for you to get um, uh, messages straight to your cell phone or email straight to your inbox or other sorts of notification. You don't don't have to buy any other tools. You don't have to get Microsoft Mom. You don't have to do anything like that. And yet, so many people ignore these, and sometimes they're a little bit daunted by the fact that, well, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm the only DBA here, and I, I have 30 day, you know, I have 30 servers that I have to support, or you know, very large. So they're kind of frightened by the the scale of the amount of support they have to do. But at the end of the day, when you are able to consolidate and uh, standardize your error notification, it actually makes your job easier, not harder. And so uh, in many shops I've gone to, I've seen otherwise very successful and very effective DBAs rendered almost completely ineffective because uh, if they can only deal with uh, their servers through this sort of firefighting mentality, when things break, I'll deal with it. Otherwise, I'm going to ignore it. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a self-defeating sort of attitude. I, I can understand the perspective because they're so busy that if they take time to make things better, they may fall behind. But at the, end of the, you know, at the end of the day, that's the only way you can get on top of a situation in which you as a single DBA are supporting many, many servers at one time.
0: Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's very, very, very true. Yeah. It, the, otherwise, it just simply doesn't scale. I mean, y- you don't scale enough to be able to do that.
1: Exactly. Well, we people do not scale. Um, but so often we're asked to support environments that scale a lot. Uh, very yeah. true.
0: So what's number one? Well, the
1: number one, uh, the number one mistake uh, in the SQL Server world that I see, and this this rating comes from the amount of pain that it inflicts, both <laughs> psychologically and physically, is are those sites that have gone to the trouble to test their backups. Um, and feel that they are safe, but they did not go that extra step and test their recovery. And so discover that not only were they not safe, they were actually uh, very, very seriously at risk. And by not understanding the recovery process, uh, you know, they have to spend the whole weekend in the office or all nights or maybe all night, two nights in a row, going through the recovery process uh, to bring things back up online. When uh, if they had taken the the backup one step further during you know the uh, the day hours when nobody really cared and going mm-hmm. through a full recovery process and learning exactly all the um, the gaps and the and the shortcomings that they have in their backup process they would have a reliable recovery process as well and could have spent those nights mm-hmm. at home with the kids and their life or you know could have spent that weekend out on, on the holiday. So my number one error number one mistake on SQL Server is not not uh, testing your backup process all the way through to a full recovery.
0: Yeah. And I must admit, the, the bit I normally like to add on that is usually on another machine. Exactly. <laughs> Very good point. Yeah. Because I, I see so many situations where, you know, the, the only tape drive, you know, on the planet that will read that tape is the one that just got stolen or destroyed or, uh, or that they've got some convoluted backup mechanism that only works, you know, I mean, they can't recover it on another machine or, you know, it's only when they actually go to recover it, they find that even though the process worked, uh, well, yeah, some of the things that they needed weren't getting backed up. Um, and yeah, and so on and so on and so on. Oh,
1: it's so true. <laughs> so, you know, um, so many shops say, you know, everything's good. I have backups. And what they really mean, the DBA means, is he has a backup of the database, the user database. And there's so yeah. many, um, there's so many things that they forget about. And the only way you can learn about that is to actually do a full restore to uh, essentially uh from the bare metal of a server. Install the OS. Install SQL Server. Uh, and then try to recover um, from uh, from that point because you'll discover that maybe you didn't have hot fixes that you needed, or service packs that you needed. Yep. Are Are you running the same version of MDAC? You know the the data access yep. components. <laughs> but maybe the application actually has an older version out there. Um yep. people often
0: or if you have to put another server in place, you know, will the clients talk to it?
1: Exactly. <laughs> uh, or perhaps you're using full text search and you haven't backed up the catalogs, the full text catalogs. Hmm. Um, you know or a, a another one that I'm sure we've both seen, and, and it just you know it's a it's a terrible thing to see when the uh, the PBA recovers the the user database but didn't back up master, and so they don't have the logins and the permission information. Yep. required to allow users to connect to the database. And so
0: now there's a there's one that I I'm going to put a little plug in for too up on the connect site connect.microsoft.com uh one of the options I'm suggesting that they need to have is an option to say create login and then where you can say from database and point the and actually create the login from an existing one in in a database. Uh, <laughs> I noticed in Service Pack 2, they, um, gave you an option now where you can say create user and you can, and refer it to, um, you can actually have it deal with the sort of mismatched security IDs and something. Right. But right. W- what they do is they go off and they fix the one in the database, kind of like they used to do with, uh, SP change users login. But to me, the most common scenario is actually the other way around. I mean, when, when you restore databases on other servers, You don't really want to keep coming up with more and more and more new security IDs. What I wish you could do is, is say create login and where you could say with Sid from database, that one over there, you know, and, and actually have it retrieve the original security ID. And at least then it'd be able to, it'd be a much simpler thing to deal with. So anyway, that's up on the connect side. I need people to go and vote for
1: it. Yeah, that's brilliant. (laughs) So that's up on connect.microsoft.com. Is that, the, is that the URL for
0: that? Connect.Microsoft.com. Oh, right. yeah. oh
1: that is brilliant.
0: I, I think that would be really pleasant it would be, yeah. <laughs> to be able to have that.
1: And since we both sat through many of those restore operations that aren't so pleasant,
0: yeah. Okay, yeah. So, yeah I must have Look, another really common one I've come across a couple of times lately, and I'm starting to think it's almost like a tooling error, is that people go into the backup dialog and they go and add a file, and then don't delete the one that's already there. Oh. And they end up striping database backup across two files. And then when the new one's created, they have they they just get it. And then later they're trying to restore from it.
1: Ah, I haven't actually heard that one before. <laughs> and, that's very interesting.
0: Uh, ah, yeah. okay, yeah, I've seen that a couple of times now. And And invariably, and that's all it is, is they've gone in, they've said do a backup, there was already a file in the box, they don't remove it, and then, you know, it it immediately then just stripes it across (laughs) the the two files. But I think most people just seem completely unaware that that can even Uh occur. Um, And they're certainly then very surprised when, you know, they get an error telling them that, you know, it's one of a a set of media and they need the rest of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, again, that's kind of sad. At the point they often find it. in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I agree. But again, you know, and that's one of the things about recovery. There's nothing worse than finding out you have yeah. a problem with your backups when you're recovering.
0: Uh, okay. Yes, <laughs> that, that's right. It's exactly the same problem you're mm-hmm. saying. So that's great, Kevin. Um, I suppose the other question I've got is where will we see you, or what's coming up in your world, or uh, what's happening, or what's What's exciting at Quest? Well,
1: I, you know, I have a lot of activities going on, and I'm, I'm happy to say that I'll be speaking at a lot of user groups, actually not just uh, throughout the USA, but um, around the world. So um, today is uh, Tuesday the 24th, or are uh, in Australia, Wednesday the 25th, and actually yep. um, all of next week I will be in Ireland uh, going to the, the biggest cities in Ireland, speaking at their uh, SQL Server and .NET user groups, so that will be Ireland next week, um, mid uh, mm-hmm. mid May. I will be in um, uh, at the Dev Peach conference in Montreal. In June, I'm actually I'm making plans at this point to speak at several locations throughout Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, and the, the various German-speaking countries. Um, and uh,
0: plus TechEd. Sorry. Presume. Plus TechEd.
1: Uh, and then TechEd. Yes. So I am. Uh, you, that's right. Yes. So TechEd is first, and then I take a week off, and then I go to Germany, and I'm actually going to take my two oldest children with me uh, on that trip, to my 14- and 16-year-olds. So we're going to uh, have some fun during the days, and in the evening speak to the user group and, right. and do some um, some things like that, um, mm-hmm. as well as uh, some smaller uh, local user group meetings. I'll be speaking at Charlotte. Uh, I'll be speaking in the Nashville user group as well, Um uh, gosh, it's hard for me to keep track of all, all the traveling and speaking I'm doing these
0: days. Yeah. And the PASS conference. Yes,
1: the PASS conference, that's coming up in September of this year and it's going to be a very bittersweet year for me. I'm I'm thrilled to have served as the president now for the past uh, four years. This will be this uh, conference which I hope uh, will be the largest yet. We've seen growth every year and and each year the conference gets bigger and and is more successful, and so uh, I hope uh, that uh, that my legacy will be uh, to one of past uh, continuing to grow and, and increasing in reach and ability to help the community and um, mm-hmm. uh, and educate the community and so forth. and so on the one hand i'm uh, I'm kind of sad that uh, that my term of service as president will will end this year, and that will be my last conference as president. But on the other hand, um, yeah. I have to admit, pass takes you know, quite a few hours in the week, and uh, it will be nice to be able yeah. to to give that back to my work and to my family, and and uh, you know just be mm. able to sleep late in uh, every now and then. So, <laughs> so, there, so there is <laughs> there is a there is a little bit of sweet to the bitter as well there.
0: And what about the Quest? Anything exciting? You, you know, I I Coming do have up? a uh,
1: a thing or two I'd like to mention about Quest. Um, the first mm-hmm. is that we have a new launch, a new uh, drop of our Lightspeed product coming out next week. It will be version 4.8. And Lightspeed is a very well-known product. It enables you to to do your backups, um, in, you know, greatly compressed in, in terms of size and in terms of the amount of yeah. space they consume. Also, the amount of time it takes to do a, a backup can be reduced, any, commonly 50 to 70 percent. Uh, some of the new features, yep. though, that are coming out in this next drop, I'm really excited about. One thing that I think is, uh, now a lot of people like the ability to do an object level restore in Lightspeed, which you can't do in the native tools. So you can re- recover a single database. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I really like in this next release is that you can actually attach to a uh, backup file, you know, uh, either natively or through uh, SQL Lightspeed, and issue queries against the native. Backup or the Lightspeed backup file. So without without ever mounting oh, it, without exciting. ever attaching it, without ever uh, restoring that database.
0: That's very Yeah, you know, we,
1: we've run into so many of our customers who are, the whole reason they're doing the backup isn't because there was an error on the disk and it's not because there was a crash or anything. It's because a user went out and did something really crazy and now they have to repair all the data. Yeah. And the only way they can repair the data yeah. is to pull up their last good backup and then re-query the good data back out of the database, um, and so this gives yeah. uh, our users the ability to do that without having to go through all of that extra process of restoring the database to a temporary location, find you know writing the queries, BCPing it out perhaps to a, another location or you know doing something like that um, to get to that data, and so it's uh, um, you know, enormously. Uh, aids and those kind of recovery situations. We also have in this next release uh, a very nice log reader feature uh, built into the system. So if you ever want to go and undo just say a single transaction or maybe two or three small transactions in the transaction log, that's also a very easy thing to do. And of course, uh, we also have Excellent. our LightSpeed Express products similar to, you know, the SQL Server Express. It's a it's a free uh, version of Lightspeed, um, and it's free for any database up to, that. I, I believe it's two gigabytes in size. So uh, for all of you developers and QA people or folks who are tinkering more than supporting production applications, you might want to take a look at Lightspeed it's Express. It's a, it's a great, uh, great way to get that extra mm. power and extra benefit without having to um, pay for the full license.
0: Yeah, without the cost. That's correct.
1: We have a couple other, uh, well, if you think you, you. do mind, Greg, just a couple other products to uh, yeah, in the no, works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, uh, we have Toad for SQL Server uh, 3.0 in beta right now, and it has uh, some fantastic features that I'm really excited about. I won't take too much time to explain those except to say that it's, it's the most hmm. powerful uh, Transact SQL IDE integrated development environment you'll find anywhere. And uh, you know includes yeah. all sorts of features um, that are I think really groundbreaking and, and and very nice. And then also we're in um, beta two of a product um, called Performance Analysis, which is just um, to me it's just one of the most amazing um, performance-related tools I've ever seen. Uh, this new release not only includes um, all the capabilities that we've had in the past to capture very, very granular detailed information about what happens on SQL Server, but then it also uh, has a very, very smart um, advisor so that it, it not only you know tells you about your performance, which a lot of tools do, but then it also tells you ways to improve yeah. it. So it'll say, for example...
0: What you can do about... Yeah, yeah it'll,
1: it'll find at a specific time that you, were, you know the server was very he- heavy in latch weights. A lot of people don't know what latch weights are. It'll explain to you what latch weights are, yeah. and then here are the ways you can fix it and uh, uh, do you want me to go and do that? Yes or no? And it's it's a it's a really quite quite a miraculous sort of thing. It's it, it's uh, it's the kind of tools that I could have used, you know, to make my life a lot easier a long time ago. <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs> that's great. Well, listen. So thanks again, Kevin, for taking the time to talk to us today. And. I will see you at TechEd, I presume. I think that'll be the next uh, yes time. to be,
1: Greg, and it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation to come and speak with you, and uh, I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you.